From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Religion for Life, religionforlife.com. I'm John Schuck. This is the third in my series of Islam 101, Meet Your Muslim Neighbor. This week, my guest is Harris Zafar. He's the national spokesperson for the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and a member of the local Portland chapter at Rizwan Mosque in Southwest Portland. Harris Zafar is the author of Demystifying Islam, Tackling the Tough Questions. He's with me in the KBOO studio. Welcome, Harris, to Religion for Life. Thank you, John. Really great, great to be here. But tell me about your role with the uh, Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Yes. The, so, uh, well, first, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is uh, the the oldest and largest Muslim organization in the United States. We have 70 chapters around the country established in 1920, and um, uh, with our headquarters actually in Silver Spring, Maryland. And so I'm a member of the Portland chapter, which is one of the smaller chapters around the country, um, but I serve as national spokesperson uh, for the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. So... In that capacity as national spokesperson, uh, I I have the opportunity or the burden, perhaps, uh, to do things like this, uh, to uh, come on local, regional, national media to answer questions about Muslims and Islam, uh, and even give lectures in different universities around the country. Um, and then, as a result, I penned my first book last last year, which was pu- published called "Demystifying Islam." And so, uh, so yes, my role is really to present the views of the community. And uh, and really provide a Muslim perspective on a variety of different issues. How did you come to write this book, uh, demystifying Islam, ta- tackling the tough questions? Uh, well, truly speaking, it was a culmination of about um, eighteen to twenty years of uh, concerted study uh, in Islam, um, as well as uh, a lot of the writings I had done and debates I had gotten into with Muslims and non-Muslims. And so, it was my take, my attempt to address what I consider to be the hot button issues. Uh, and I reached out to many non-Muslim friends, including a lot of my evangelical friends, to say, hey, just to be honest, what are the areas of Islam that cause most confusion or even concern in your minds? Mm-hmm. And all of the ones that I saw were a pattern, I chapter by chapter tried to demystify those and remove those shrouds of confusion. And so that's what this was for us, for my fellow Americans and for even Muslim Americans. Uh, to to uh, to see how do we understand these different controversial issues? You know, for most non-Muslim Americans, their first interaction with Islam and with Muslims was 9/11. Mm-hmm. Certainly not a good introduction. So now we're 14 years later. In your experience, has progress been made um, in for non-Muslim Americans and Muslim Americans in their relations? Uh, I do believe good progress has been made. Um, I do think that there is great room for improvement as well. Uh-huh. There still seems to be uh, persisting concerns within um, large parts of the Muslim, uh, sorry, the American population about Islam. Uh, all the recent poll data s- still shows these persisting issues, uh, concerns about either the Muslim Muslim roles or Islamic views on things such as human rights, free speech, uh, Sharia law, the caliphate. And so um, so I, uh, it still seems like there have, been, there have been a lot of Americans who have taken the effort to understand Islam or at least speak to their Muslim neighbors, like you had mentioned. Um, but there, the fact that there is the polls, for example, was a 2013 or 14, the Pew Research came out of the poll that said that 60%, 6-0 of Americans have never met a Muslim. Uh, they don't know any Muslim in their life. And so that's that's a matter of great concern. And so that's why these things are great, is to be able to spur that conversation. So that would probably be the, the one factor that would help relations and decrease Islamophobia 
would be personal interactions. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's it's really easy to fear and mistrust someone that you don't know and you don't have any interaction with. And I think our human history, our American history shows that. Look what happened to the Japanese in this country, uh, how they were treated as the, the neighbor not to be trusted. Where are their loyalties? Look what happened to the Jews in this country, the black Americans in this country. And it, we had to apologize for all of those uh, once we realized who they were. Mm-hmm. And so it's the same thing. It just be able to understand, listen to a Muslim, uh, him or herself, to understand what really drives them and what their faith really means. In your uh, book, Demystifying Islam, you look at a number of different areas, Islam and violence, Islam and women, uh, kind of the basics of understanding Islam, what the terms are, right. jihad. Let's go with jihad for a second. That's uh, We see in the media all the time Islamic jihadists. Um, and I know... And so the the image that comes right to mind is this angry, violent Arab Muslim ready to attack people. Right. So is the fault the media in some degree? Um, because obviously jihad is a far deeper meaning than that. Right. Um, I think you know the 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 blame really is shared. Okay. Um, I mean, we can't as Muslims we can't bury our head in the sand and and just say it's it's just the media. Uh-huh. I mean, there are quite frankly, idiots out there uh, who proclaim to be Muslims, um, who have acted in, and done some really nefarious things. They've, they've, they've done bad things. And when bad people do bad things, we have to call them out. So yes, there are Muslims, Muslim clerics out there that talk about f- killing the Jews, fighting the West, uh, killing and destroying, um, but they are in small minority. And that's the, that's the role that the media has to play is amplifying the voice of the small minority uh, lunatics and then largely, not entirely, but largely ignoring the voice of the majority of Muslims who are calling for peace and reconciliation and talking about what their faith actually means to them. What does it actually drive them to do? And it's not to kill and destroy. Um, so I do believe that, obviously, I can't expect anyone in the media to be an Islamic scholar. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they when they specifically reserve words that are Islamic words, like jihad, jihadist, uh, sharia, uh, khilafat, or the anglicized version, cal- caliphate, only reserve those words for the violent people, uh, totally destroying the historical origins of those words, uh, then you're you're creating this environment of fear of Islamic terms, which, and we're trying to reclaim them. Jihad, as you mentioned, is simply an Arabic term which talks about to struggle for something. It could be for anything. Uh, when I get out of bed in the morning, that's a jihad, just to get out of bed. <laughs> um, and uh, what I'm doing right now by speaking with you and your listeners, this is my jihad. This is a struggle to clarify what Islam truly teaches. And so... Uh, so we have to understand what 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 do these terms really mean? And it's nothing to be afraid of. But we're standing with our Americans against those violent lunatics. Is there something within Islam in which jihad they're drawing from a tradition for violence? Uh, yes. So uh, in Islam, there's three types of jihad that are mentioned. Uh, there, uh, I'll, I'll spare you the Arabic terms. The one is called the the greatest jihad, and that's the internal struggle to purify yourself all the indecencies and malices that we all have, whether we lie, we cheat, we, we curse, uh, whatever it is. Uh, then there's the great jihad, not the greatest, but the great jihad, which is this, uh, using the Quran as in a rational dialogue to defend Islam and spread its teachings. Mm-hmm. And then there is something that the Prophet called the, the lesser jihad. Um, and, w- and that is defined as a physical struggle, an armed conflict, in order to defend people's right and freedom of conscience and religion. And that's, it presupposes a, a defensive war. So if any body of people are physically attacked, 
because of their faith, then Muslims are obligated uh, to come to their defense physically. And that's why the verse in the Quran that talks about fighting, it says permission to fight is given to those against whom war is made because they've been wronged, that they've been driven out of their home simply for their faith. And the very next verse clarifies who we're talking about. Because it says, if you didn't do this, if you didn't fight the people who are physically trying to attack you, then it mentions churches, cloisters, synagogues, and mosques would all be destroyed. So it clarifies that our the only permission given Islam to fight is to protect churches, protect mosques, protect synagogues from being destroyed at the hands of terrorists. How do terrorists then justify theologically an offensive jihad? What we see is... Um, uh, the, the, a lot of these radical clerics, uh, what they'll say is, yes, we are being attacked. When when the U.S. Mm. Uh, attacks Afghanistan or when they came into Iraq or the different things we've done around the world, that they're not doing it for political reasons. We are being physically attacked for our religion, so we have to respond. So they are able to leverage that, twist its meaning, um, and even talk about a proactive war. Even though the Prophet Muhammad had said, that a Muslim can never strike the first blow. It's only in response, uh, and that too to to reinstill uh, order in the land. And they're ignoring all the other verses that say, do not create disorder in the land. That's repeated at least a half a dozen to a dozen times in the Quran. And so those verses are ignored, and but they leverage the ones that talk about what to do in a state of war, and what justifies war, and obviously they twist it for their own narrative. You know, um, I wonder if, I, I keep thinking there's a parallel with the just war tradition within Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, there is, a you know, similar kinds of things. You only do it in defense. You only do it if it's the last uh, possibility. Right. And yet, uh, throughout history, every war has been justified by the just <laughs> war theory. Right, right. And and that's that's exactly the point, is that this is not a religious problem. Uh -huh. And I mean, I, I've seen some people say that, well, it's uh, if we didn't have religion, this would never happen. Um, but that's simply not the case. This is a human problem. And humans will grasp for anything to justify what they want to do. Uh, I mean, look at the organ shooter here. Um, he was a raging anti-religionist, anti-theist. And so... Um, and look what he did in the in the community college. So it, I think the point is that there are weak-minded humans that will grasp at anything to divide and conquer. Uh, we've used religion uh, historically, politics, uh, national identity, gender identity, ethnic identity, all to separate and attack people. And so the, the, the problem is not religion. If anything, I think the solution is uh, to unite under this concept of one God. Harris Safar, my guest on Religion for Life. Uh, he is the uh, spokesperson for the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and author of Demystifying Islam, Tackling the Tough Questions. Uh, one thing I learned from your book was the wide variety um, of Muslims in the world right. and, and, and the small percentage that are of Arab ethnicity. That's right. Yes, people are often surprised to hear that, that the estimates say about 15% of the Muslim world, one-five, uh, is of Arab descent. So it's not an Arab religion. Um there's a rich diversity, both from a theological standpoint, an ethnic standpoint, nationality. Um, people have heard the terms Sunni and Shia. Mm -hmm. Those are very broad terms, much akin to Catholic and Protestant. They're not individual congregations or denominations. Within each of those umbrellas, there are many branches and subdivisions. Um, and so uh, so it's, it's important to understand just how diverse the Muslim world is. And so when someone says, what's the Muslim view on X? Yeah. Well, you can't say that, right? There is no one monolithic view because the, there's, there's estimated to be anywhere between 70 to 100 different denominations or sects of Muslims in the world.
So can you give us just a, a brief uh, general family tree and perhaps how your group, uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, fits into it? Absolutely. Um, so the vast majority of Muslims around the world are of the are in the Sunni side of the divide. Mm-hmm. It was a historical divide about leadership after the Prophet Muhammad's demise that split the hitherto united community into Sunni and Shia. Um, about 85% of the Muslim world is within the Sunni side and about 15% in the Shia side. The Ahmadiyya Muslim community in this split is on the Sunni side of the of the divide. Um, but what makes us a bit unique is that um, all Muslims, it's a theological divide. So all Muslims are waiting for this second coming of a Messiah that the Prophet Muhammad had spoken about. I know the Christians are waiting for the second coming of Jesus. Uh, Jews are still waiting for the first coming of the Messiah. Uh, but Muslims are all waiting for a, a return of a Messiah, as well as a return of someone called the Imam Mahdi, this rightly guided leader that would come and usher in this renaissance of Islam. And whereas all Muslims are still waiting for this individual, this Messiah, this Imam Mahdi to come, uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community believes that occurred in the late 1800s in the person of Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Qadian, India, uh, who came with a claim that he is a metaphorical second coming of Jesus of Nazareth uh, and that divine guide that was foretold by the Prophet Muhammad who would come to f- to finally reunite mankind. Because the Quran says, the God says in the Quran that he created mankind as one, but then they differed amongst themselves. And mm-hmm. then in the latter days, this person would come to finally reunite and get rid of all these differences and unite them not by force, but under this banner of peace and, and the oneness of God. So we accepted this man's claim 125, 127 years ago now, um, claiming to be that Messiah that was awaited. What did he do to deserve that uh, recognition? Um, so well, several things. <laughs> and so uh, first there are um, scriptural prophecies as well as prophecies made by the Prophet Muhammad about who this person will be and how do you know that they'll be true. Mm-hmm. Um, and some you just can't manipulate. You know, for example, the prophet had said that uh, you'll know when it's the real Messiah, because there'll be a lot of false claimants to being the Messiah. You'll know it's a real one when his claim will be followed by a solar and lunar eclipse in the same month, and that too during the month of Ramadan, the month that we do fasting. Uh, and that uh, that has occurred in history, but never after the claim of anyone to be that Messiah. Uh, when Mirza Qulam Ahmed had made the claim, that was followed by exactly on the specific days that the Prophet Muhammad had foretold that would happen, it happened. Now, there are other things that happen. There are two other things I would say. One is there are other prophecies about war and how uh, Muslim leadership will be the worst people in the world at the time when uh, the Messiah will have emerged, um, but also what his mission will be. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that he will bring people back to the original teachings of Islam, bring them back to God. He will um, speak out and condemn uh, acts of terrorism and violence, uh, people who are perverting the teachings of Islam. And Mirza Khulam Ahmed did that. He came saying that the jihad of the sword is dead. Uh, he said, we no longer live in a day. Uh, and he said this before, it was politically correct to say it, right? This was mm-hmm. 127 years ago. He said that we live in a day where we're no longer physically attacked for our religion. Uh, so he said that jihad of the sword is dead. Now he had called us to what he called jihad bil qalam, which is the jihad of the pen. He said that's the pen is being wielded against Islam these days, and that's the only weapon we can wield in its defense. And to that end, he penned over 80 books, over 100,000 letters, engaged in scores of public debates, all in this rigorous defense of Islam that even unsettled uh, uh, conventional Muslim thinking at that time. And so that uh, carries on, for example, in the work that, that you do, and perhaps your whole community does, is to use words to communicate um, your views. 
Absolutely, it's part and parcel. It's in our it's in our DNA. It's mm-hmm. who we are to uh, to use our voice and our and our uh, and use dialogue and discourse to defend Islam. I notice your website is uh, Muslims for Peace. That's right, MuslimsforPeace.org. How did you happen to come up with that? Is that your own community or is that the whole community? Uh, that's uh, that's the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. That uh, it, it was in 2010 after uh-huh. that failed Times Square attempt, bombing attempt by Fasal okay. Shazad, where we heard that there was this voice amongst Americans saying that. Where is this concerted uh, voice of Muslims condemning violence, which has been there since 9-11 and beyond, but uh, they, people were accusing Muslims of being silent. So this is where we created that platform, muslimsforpeace.org, where we had literally thousands of uh, Muslim men and women around the country hitting the streets with these flyers that said Muslims for Peace, wearing T-shirts saying Muslims for Peace, and literally handed out millions of millions of these flyers, all in a grassroots effort to spread the teachings of Islam. Is there such a thing as uh, liberal Islam? I'm thinking of people who uh, perhaps may celebrate the festivals, perhaps perhaps uh, do some charity, maybe pray, maybe not. Really don't perhaps review view the Quran as divine. Um, but I mean, there are a lot of Christians like that. Uh-huh. Is there a tradition within that, within uh, Islam itself? Uh, there is with a slight alteration to the definition of liberal. Okay. Um, uh, what you had said in the beginning, absolutely. Um, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, as well as other Muslims that we have interacted with, uh, celebrate the 4th of July, celebrate Thanksgiving, um, the New Year's, and, and all the things that you uh, you would come to uh, uh, identify as part and parcel of American um, culture, um, while also uh, praying with others, for others. Um, but do not abandon... And this is the alteration of the definition. We don't abandon the view that the Quran is divinely revealed, and it is uh, literally the the word of God, not the not the inspired word of God, but the literal word of God. Uh, so we still uh, there are many liberal Muslims out there uh, that would define the Quran as being from God. Uh, but that it doesn't conflict with our American identity. And that's what we're trying to do within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, and especially our youth organization, is yeah. to work with youth to understand that there's not, no conflict between being American and being a Muslim, that they they're actually fit very comfortably with one another. And you don't have to choose between being a devout American, oh, sorry, a devout Muslim or a loyal American, that they, that they, they match pretty perfectly. Just to take another direction on this, is is there a, a school of thought that uh, regards, for example, the Quran uh, critically, uh, such as the Bible? We think of mm-hmm. historical criticism of the Bible, uh, recognizing its human roots and whatnot. Is there a tradition within Islam, maybe not yours or maybe sure. so, that is also has that aspect in terms of um, critiquing its own traditions? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, there, there's been an emergence of um, some Muslims uh, who call themselves reformists yeah. and uh, reformers and um, and they do take, uh, they do push back and disagree with certain parts of the Quran. Um, and so, so yeah, there, there is that tradition out there. Um, our, so the way that I view that is a, a lot of what they're arguing for, I agree with. So the, the equity and equality for women, uh-huh. um, uh, nonviolence, uh, to how to live in, in peace with others. Uh, the, the difference between our approach and theirs is we don't believe you have to change Islam to make that happen. So uh, we reject this notion that the original Islam uh, is somehow inherently violent and that we need a somehow you know Islam 2.0 uh, or a new version of Islam 
uh, that can live in peace with others. Uh, we truly believe that as 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 people, as devout Muslims who follow the scholarship of the Prophet Muhammad, that that is what Islam is. So it's uh, that. So we 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 understand that when the when in the Quran God says that this is from Him, this is His words, and He even has a verse in there saying this is a perfect book. That we we don't disagree then. So when God says this is a perfect book, and it's your job to understand that there's some verses that are very clear in meaning, but some that are open to interpretation. And even says that there are some who will, because of their perversion of their heart, will pervert the verses of the Quran. Um, but it to the job is to bring them back to the original teachings. And so uh, I believe that the the liberties that, uh, that we all champion, uh, the freedoms and the human rights, uh, they're all actually sanctified in the Quran. Um, but yeah, there is this disagreement where some people believe you have to change the Quran to live in peace, whereas we're saying that we want to live in the same peace, um, but you can do so by following the actual teachings of the Quran. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Harris Zafar. He's the spokesperson for the Ahmadiyya Muslim community uh, and uh, the author of Demystifying Islam, Tackling the Tough Questions. I want to take a second and go with this um, Islamic State organization that's been in, uh, certainly in the news, and uh, how did that fit into the Islamic family tree, if it does? Good question. So, um, so first, the Islamic State or Daesh, as they're often known as well, um, they they're not a, they're not a sect of Islam. They're not they're not a theological movement. Okay. Uh, they're a they're a geopolitical movement, and even if you look at their origins, it was all about changing the culture, the society, the political structure of the geography that they lived in. They wanted a new world order. They thought it was corrupt. It was all about, and it became a political movement that turned into a guerrilla political movement, a warfare group. Um, and nothing that they've done is actually backed by. Uh, a religious teaching, you know. For example, who was that? They had that French um, journalist who was held captive by ISIS uh, for a 10, 11 months, and he said the entire time in captivity, he didn't see one copy of the Holy Quran at all. Uh, mm. Nobody was reading it to it, to him or reading it on their own. Um, or th their kindred spirits, Boko Haram, who became famous for abducting those girls in Nigeria, when they were um, they were uh, sieged and and held captive by the military in Nigeria. And they were quizzed. They said, okay, can you, they were, they were given the Quran and told to read it. They couldn't. They couldn't read the Arabic. Uh, when they're asked, what's the first chapter of the Quran? They couldn't even say it. And the first chapter is seven verses that every Muslim recites 30 times every single day as part of the five daily prayers. So my four-year-old knows the, the first chapter of the Quran. Huh. And these Boko Haram militants couldn't even recite it. So when we look at these things, we, we begin to understand that, oh, this is not, an Islamic movement, they have slapped on a religious moniker in order to amplify their recruitment efforts. So they're, it's, it's really that's the role religion does play, is to beautify an otherwise ugly ideology that's all on destruction, chaos, murder, terrorism, all things explicitly forbidden in Islam. But once they apply a religious moniker and say there's a greater to life purpose than this and you'll be rewarded in heaven, that's how they can dupe some naive and uh, ignorant people into joining. Yeah, and it's, I mean, they're violent about, against everyone. I mean, yes. uh, the Shia are all, all the different groups. I mean, they want to kill everybody. It That's seems. right. That, you're, you're, abso not... you're absolutely right. Even, I, I don't think it's ever appropriate to compare the value of one life to another. Uh, but statistically speaking, 
the greatest number of casualties at the hands of ISIS are Muslims, Sunni and Shia. Because obviously they're they're anti-Shia, but the Sunnis that say, uh, no, this is not what Islam is all about. We're not going to commit violence. They're being slaughtered in scores at the hands of Daesh. Uh, and so, so yes, this is... This is not some uh, movement to uh, spread Islam. This is a movement mm-hmm. to establish a new world order, a new country, and to spread that around the world. We're in the midst of a presidential election. The candidates seem to be stumbling over each other about how tough they are. Uh, one wants to carpet bomb, I don't know what, uh, the entire Middle East, I guess. Your thoughts on strategy in dealing with the Islamic State? Uh, well, first, yeah, I don't think he even knows what carpet bomb means. It's just because <laughs> the way he's been using that. Um, but yeah, so I mean, we, we hear this rhetoric about basically, let's make the same mistakes we've made in the past. Uh-huh. Um, we armed the, they called themselves the Mujahideen back in the day uh, in Afghanistan because the enemy of my enemy was my friend. So we gave them arms to fight against Russia. We gave them training. We gave them all this ammunition. And there's even a picture of Ronald Reagan in the White House shaking their hands, comparing those people to the founding fathers of the United States. Those people then were called uh, Taliban a few years later. Mm-hmm. And look and look at how they turned against us. Uh, we're doing, we're, it seems to it seems to me that we're making the exact same mistakes. We're arming these rebels in Syria, hoping that they're going to be the good guys and they're not going to misuse these ammunition we're giving them. So that's not the solution. I think that the solution to solving this problem of ISIS uh, is a, a two-pronged approach. Uh, number one is a short-term and the number two is a long-term. Short-term, yes, ISIS does need to face a physical force that will stop their physical uh, oppression and repression of people. Uh, the issue right now is uh, the lack of leadership in the secular Muslim world. Um, that mm. they are the ones that should have been leading this fight against ISIS. The 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 leaders, the presidents of countries like Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, they should have banded together to create a coalition because that's their problem. I mean, that's that's happening in their part of the world, mm-hmm. uh, and the U.S. could certainly have supported that. But the problem right now is that it's U.S.-led. And I think that's a problem because yeah. it's going to be twisted to say, look, it's Western imperialism. They're attacking us again. Come, Muslims, we need to fight this great white devil. And so it's going to be used against us in their in their recruitment efforts. So the short-term solution is to fight them, is to destroy their infrastructure, return the lands back to the countries in which they belong to. But it has to be led by, we need more involvement from those countries. But then there's a long-term solution as well which is if we just destroy ISIS, it creates a vacuum that'll be replaced by the next group. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that we have Al-Qaeda, Taliban, Al-Shabaab, Boko Haram, it shows that there's this vacuum of uh, radical-minded people. So the long-term solution is to create a platform for um, a, a superior understanding of Islam so that Islam can't be used or religion can't be used to, to recruit people. So you destroy their ideological platform they're using to gain uh, gain uh, followers. And that's where I think the President Obama had said it great in December in his, in his uh, address, where he called out the Muslim leaders. And he said, you guys need to do a better job and in condemning violence, condemning terrorism, and and providing a better version of Islam. And that's what we're trying to do with the launch of this new campaign that we call True Islam and the Extremists, where um, we just launched it less than a month ago, where it's a it's a unique, it's a one campaign, a one platform where all Americans, um, uh, Muslim and non-Muslim alike, can, can join in a confrontation of extremism. 
and we've identified 11 principles that we believe anyone should be able to agree to, uh, that, that once we can show that they have no basis in true Islam, then it takes away the ability for people to be recruited to groups like ISIS. So, so yeah, I think that's a short and long-term solution. Yeah, tell me about that website again. Uh, it's trueislam.com. And it's, again, it's not just for Muslims. But what we have done, we've identified 11 principles or points mm-hmm. that true Islam calls for. Um, and uh, we believe even non-Muslims should be able to come and say, yes, we agree with this. And you can go on the site, trueislam.com, and endorse this campaign and join us in this fight against extremism. Very good. Well, you know, you mentioned at the beginning that 60% of non-Muslim Americans have never met a Muslim or think they haven't. Right. Sure they have. Right. How might a person meet with you at your community? Um, well, there's several ways. You can come. To, we, we have a lot of digital properties. So we have portlandmuslims.com. You can go there. You can connect with us there. Contact us. Mm-hmm. You have muslimsforpeace.org. You have this trueislam.com campaign but basically it's just you could pick up the phone and just reach out to us as your as your neighbors every friday prayer that we have at the at the rizwan mosque um uh every friday prayer almost we have some guests whether it's a student or someone off the street who just wants to see how muslims pray and you can come in and observe and and we'll we'll chat all right. Sounds great. Harris, thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for this important book, Demystifying Islam, Tackling the Tough Questions. Uh, thank you for being with me today. Thanks, John. I really appreciate it. Meet Your Muslim Neighbor continues next week on Religion for Life. Find podcasts at religionforlife.com. Religion for Life is produced at KBOO Portland. I'm John Shuck. Be well. 